Hey folks, Double T here. I'd like to welcome everybody in from here and around the globe to the Double T Podcast Network. Today, I'm going to talk about a few news stories that I found quite interesting, and I'd like to revisit one that we did on our last show, because our old pal, narcissistic former governor, disgraced Andrew Cuomo, is back in the news. Andrew Cuomo resigned as New York governor amid a scandal last August, but his confidants keep saying he's plotting a political comeback. In interviews with a dozen former allies and aides, they characterized the three-term governor as still stewing over what he believes was his forced resignation, and they say that he's been conferring with some of them to determine his best course. Cuomo is designing a plan to vindicate himself, the former aide said, and his attorneys say over what he views as a politically driven report by State Attorney General Letitia James that corroborated claims he sexually harassed 11 women, including subordinates, and forced him from office. Let me say, though, Cuomo sanctioned this investigation. I do expect that you'll be hearing from the governor relatively soon on the issue, his lawyer Rita Galvin said. I can't give you the date, but I know he's planning on making some comments. She quickly added, quote, he will not let this go, end quote. What form that comeback takes has been a subject of intense intrigue in New York for weeks. His moves, which have already included a public declaration that he regrets resigning from office, come days ahead of the state Democratic Convention in Manhattan, where Cuomo was likely to be the topic of the day despite being nowhere near the event. One option, some past and current advisors said, would be to use his campaign war chest to simply attack his political foes this year or try to use his remaining influence to steer political conversations. He recently dined with New York Mayor Eric Adams, which raised eyebrows in Albany. An aggressive push comes with peril, some former aides noted. He will likely face civil suits over the sexual harassment claims. The State Ethics Board is trying to claw back his $5.1 million book deal and undercounting of nursing home deaths continues to dog him. But he plans to do something. Might he kick off a return to public discourse by speaking at a black church, as some close to him privately suggest, as he did regularly amid scandals of the past? Or more defiantly and brazenly, he will run for his old seat as state attorney general taking the $13 million still in his campaign coffers and unleashing a political war to beat James, who briefly ran for governor last year, only to change her mind and run for re-election to her current seat. Cuomo spokesman Rich Apizardi, in his strongest comments on the subject yet, said a run for attorney general is not happening, despite all of the speculation around the possibility. While no one here can help if some people in this town continue to be fixated on him, this is blatantly false, Apizardi said in an email to Politico. 
From the beginning, the governor has been laser-focused on getting the truth out and making sure that New Yorkers understand the rampant politics and prosecutorial misconduct that permeated every page of the AG's sham report, which, again, Cuomo sanctioned. In his first recent interview, Cuomo told Bloomberg News that he regrets resigning but I never resigned because I said I did something wrong. I said I'm resigning because I don't want to be a distraction. That is a blatant lie. He resigned because he knew he was going to get impeached. He didn't rule out a run for office. Also occupying his time, aiding his younger brother Chris in his battle against CNN after he was fired as its primetime host. The journalist helped his elder brother during his scandals. Already that fight led to the ouster of CNN boss Jeff Zucker, who admitted to a consensual relationship with co-worker Allison Galusk, who was briefly a former communication director for the governor. Andrew Cuomo, 64, told Bloomberg that his brother's firing hurt him more than his own resignation. Cuomo, ever the political tactician, ran out of cards to play last August. The Attorney General report, coupled with his office's underreporting of COVID-19 deaths tied to nursing homes and the $5 million book deal on his COVID response that used state resources, stacked the deck against him. If he didn't resign, legislative leaders made it clear he would be impeached. But Cuomo feels wronged, particularly by the James report. A lot of people say that he resigned, that's proof of wrongdoing, Galvin told reporters. But what people don't understand is amongst all members of the assembly, which would be voting on impeachment, they said that he had to resign or they were going to impeach him. And that's what the report was meant to do. James has defended the report saying Cuomo is simply trying to redefine history and salvage his 40-year legacy in and around New York politics. For months, Andrew Cuomo has been hiding behind his campaign lawyer and falsely crying witch hunt. Despite previously admitting to this misconduct multiple times, James's office said after Galvin and Cuomo would file a complaint aimed at disbarring James. If he thinks he has a real legal case, he should go ahead and file it. These attacks are disgraceful and yet another desperate charade to mask the truth. Andrew Cuomo is a serial sexual harasser. During the pandemic, Cuomo's star rose as fast as it crashed. He was a media darling during the nationally televised COVID briefings, including playful ones with his brother, landed the lucrative book deal, and was even talked about as a potential presidential candidate. But now Cuomo faces what would be an extraordinary backlash if he were to quickly try to revive his political standing. Some former aides recoiled at the suggestion of Como back on the stump. Other than seeking vindication and to bolster his own standing, 
few could point to a rationale for any political campaign. The main question everyone's asking is when do people move on? And there are no answers. A former Cuomo aide said, speaking on a condition of anonymity, to discuss the former governor in frank terms. At some point, you have to pivot. The pivot point is a loss of an election. I think the key on all sides is when he is comfortable saying, I need to move on. Cuomo is believed to be looking at private polling again. Those close to him said he regularly commissioned while in office. But public polls have shown little support since he resigned. A September poll by Siena College showed 67% to 26% margin, including a 55% of Democrats. The voters said Cuomo should have resigned, and his favorability was the worst Siena had found, 34% to 55% down from 45% to 47% last June. He resigned, and you know it takes a certain kind of person to try and re-enter the public space literally a few months after resignation in disgrace. But to each their own, State Senator James Scofa said, a Hudson Valley Democrat. Cuomo's vindication tour ramps up after five district attorneys all chose in recent weeks not to pursue criminal charges against him, something I don't understand, over the sexual harassment charges detailed in James's report, though none questioned the veracity of the women's claims. It is insulting to tell someone who has been wrongly accused and treated unfairly, just move on, Galvin said. No, he is not going to move on because truth is important, process is important, Misconduct cannot get swept under the rug, but other problems for the governor linger. The New York Sexual Harassment Working Group, made up of former female aides who were mistreated while working in state government, filed a complaint this month to get Cuomo disbarred as an attorney, a reminder that any Cuomo effort to redeem himself would be met with a swift response. While Andrew Cuomo continues his vindication media campaign, the Sexual Harassment Working Group is fighting for actual accountability for the harm that he inflicted on at least 11 women, the group said. Also, any of the extraordinary political support Cuomo amassed during his time in office has evaporated. Unions, business groups, and the political leaders have all moved on. They all have largely galvanized around Cuomo's successor, Kathleen Hochul, for her election bid this fall and for James's re-election. That is why some expect Cuomo to be more focused on clearing his own name rather than a political run. Doing so hasn't worked out well for other disgraced New York politicians in recent memory, such as Elliot Spitzer and Anthony Weiner. Both tried to run for office and failed. What he does or chooses to do, I think, will be more focused on his efforts to clear his name, said State Democratic Chair Jay Jacobs, who remained a loyal ally but ultimately called for Cuomo to resign and now backs Hochul and James. Cuomo's career has been 
staked to a bare-knuckle approach to governing, a style that undid his ill-fated first run for governor in 2002 against a popular state comptroller, Carl McCall, who unsuccessfully sought to be the state's first black governor. That led to a comeback in 2006 when Cuomo ran for attorney general, beat a crowded Democratic field, and crushed former Westchester County District Attorney Janine Pirro, a Republican, at the polls that November. The comeback was complete four years later when he handily won the governor's office, a seat held by his father, the late Mario Cuomo, for 12 years. But many Albany observers have noted Cuomo's own revival and then the irony of today. It was aided by damning reports he oversaw as Attorney General against Spitzer and Spitzer's successor, David Patterson, putting fuel on the fire of their scandals that led to his ascension. Cuomo may very well see his next political chapter as his second revival. After all, his first book, a memoir in 2014 that sold a whopping 3,000 copies, was titled All Things Possible, Setbacks and Success in Politics and Life. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I have to tell you, this guy is absolutely a complete narcissist and out of his mind. He is so angry and he is so defiant that his ego will be his downfall because I do not see the good people of New York ever putting him in any kind of elected position again. But we'll have to see what happens. Stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Hey folks, we're back. A story that caught my eye was going back to the Winter Olympics in Beijing. A story about Eileen Gu, the American-born skier who now competes for China. She spent much of her recent gold medal news conference sidestepping questions about her citizenship. Gu is the most prominent of a number of Olympic athletes in Beijing, including skaters and hockey players, who were raised in America but now compete for China. The IOC allows athletes with dual citizenship to compete, but requires them to hold a passport for the country which they represent in the Olympics. China, however, does not permit dual citizenship at least according to the laws on its books. However, the process for renouncing American citizenship carries significant long-term repercussions for anyone wishing to remain connected in any way to America. The actual renunciation process is fairly quick. A simple declaration that you want to end your U.S. citizenship, the payment of a fee, and the surrender of your passport but the repercussion could last a lifetime. Americans who renounce their citizenship often do so because they are interested in extricating themselves from the American tax system, which imposes substantial tax reporting burdens on American citizens even living overseas. A smaller category of accidental Americans, for instance, children of American diplomats born overseas, 
renounce their citizenship because they've never lived in America. To renounce citizenship, an American must walk into an overseas embassy renouncing their citizenship while on U.S. soil. Extremely rare and to declare their intentions in person to a consular office. The soon-to-be former citizen must complete a questionnaire, sign a statement of intent, and pay a fee of $2,350, the highest in the world for this purpose. The aggregate effect of these hurdles is to ascertain that an individual is serious about giving up their citizenship. A consular office will often give you some pushback because of the repercussions, says Sanford Posner, an immigration lawyer with Fisher Boyles with nearly a quarter of a century of practice experience. If you have a family in the United States and you need access to by giving up your U.S. passport, you are essentially making it very difficult to get back into the United States. Verbally renouncing your citizenship as an act of protest or defiance may carry some symbolic weight to the demonstrator, but in the eyes of the United States government, there is no legal weight behind it until you sign away your citizenship and give up your passport to a consular officer, Posner says. It's just a statement into the ether. One crucial element of renouncing citizenship is ensuring that one already has obtained citizenship in another nation. Without that overlap, an individual risks being deemed stateless, which can cause difficulty with virtually every aspect of public life. The ability to work, study, receive medical benefits, own or rent property, or even marry. Stateless individuals have no protection of any country and run the risk of being kicked out of the United States entirely and permanently. The Federal Register publishes quarterly lists of individuals who have renounced citizenship. It's purportedly to be comprehensive, but expatriates have reported waits of months or years before appearing on the list. Eileen Gu's name does not appear on any quarterly list to date. The financial implications of renouncing citizenship are substantial, particularly for high net worth individuals. The United States does not want to surrender citizens that can provide continual tax income, and the barriers in place are designed to make renouncing citizenship a costly affair for years to come. Giving up your passport is a taxable transaction, says Mark Schwartz, an attorney, CPA, and founder of Schwartz International, an international tax advisory firm. If you give up your passport and your net worth is less than $2 million, it's typically not an issue. But if it's more than $2 million, you have to do a fictitious, quote, sale of everything you own in the world. In other words, your total assets are not just the United States, but around the world. You assess the tax basis of their fair market value and whatever you have gained above approximately $740,000, you pay taxes on. For a minor league hockey player, this would not likely be an issue. For someone with multiple worldwide endorsement contracts like Goo, the financial costs involved in surrendering an American passport would be substantial. 
Even renouncing the passport doesn't end the U.S. government's involvement in an expatriate's business. What you need to do when renouncing a passport is to file a final year tax return and the IRS has three years to audit it. More if there's a suspicion of fraud, Schwartz said. You're never really out of the U.S. crosshairs. A person seeking to renounce U.S. citizenship must renounce all the rights and privileges associated with citizenship, a State Department spokesman told Yahoo Sports. Such privileges include the right to vote, the ability to seek assistance of the United States Embassy while living in their new home country. Most notably, surrendering citizenship means surrendering the right to freely enter and leave the United States without the use of a visa, either a student visa, a work visa, or some other form of certification, giving the now former citizen the temporary right to remain in the United States. Such visas come with requirements and restrictions. Some, on a visitor visa, for instance, is not permitted to work in the United States. What if our now former citizen decides they made a mistake? It is a long process to undo the renouncing of citizenship and with no guarantee of success. You would basically start back at square one, Posner says. There are two ways to become a citizen, either through family member, spouse, parent, or immediate relative, or through an employer. You have to go to various non-immigrant and immigrant visas before becoming a citizen. Such processes typically take many years in best case scenarios. If Eileen Gu and other American athletes competing for China have in fact renounced their citizenship, they may enjoy the benefits of representing a new nation, but their legal and financial and logistical relationship with the country of their birth will have become infinitely more complicated. Again, the IOC doesn't have a problem with athletes having dual citizenship. The reason the issue has come to the forefront is because of China's rule against it. The question is whether they're enforcing it. Jeremy Smith is a hockey player from Dearborn, Michigan, but is competing in the games for China. He told the SPN that one of the conditions of playing for China was that he would not renounce his U.S. citizenship. They were like, don't worry, we will not ask you. This is not what this whole process is about. It's getting you qualified for the Olympics, he said. Smith also told Yahoo Sports, when I'm in China, I am a Chinese. I'm supported by the Chinese and I am truly thankful for that. And when I go back to America, I'm American. If you've been following the Eileen Gu story, that's a line of reasoning. It should be familiar. I'm American when I'm in the U.S., Gu has stated on multiple occasions when asked about her citizenship, and I'm Chinese when I'm in China. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens here. She sidestepped those questions in the interviews, so this is all purely speculation, but it's quite a fascinating story, and the rules are quite clear. We'll wait and see what happens. I'm going to take a short break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to do a Super Bowl prediction. 
Hello, sports fans. This is Howard Cosell coming to you live from the Super Bowl at the Los Angeles Coliseum. The Los Angeles Rams versus the Cincinnati Bengals. Okay, that was my best, Howard Cosell. So today we got the Rams and the Bengals. Two teams I don't think anybody expected to be in the Super Bowl. I think everybody was expecting a Brady repeat. I think people also thought the Buffalo Bills might sneak in there. I thought everybody thought maybe Aaron Rodgers was going to go back again. There was a big season of surprises this year, and here we are with a game that I think is going to be absolutely outstanding. I don't think you could have picked two better teams to compete against each other. Uh, you have the youngest quarterback ever to play in the Super Bowl, who I think is going to be the next guy up to even possibly challenge Tom Brady in any of his records. Joe Burrow, if he can stay healthy. This guy is just unbelievable. Personally, I think Patrick Mahomes is a great quarterback, but I think Patrick Mahomes was crowned way too soon but I also think that one of the things that has held the Kansas City Chiefs back is their coach Andy Reid I think Andy Reid's a great coach but he is the poorest clock manager that I've ever seen and I think Kansas City has lost some very crucial games right at the end because of very poor clock management um, so that's just my opinion uh, Buffalo should have never lost their playoff game. That was because of poor clock management. Um, what the future holds, I mean, we just, you know, we lost some good quarterbacks this year to retirement. Uh, you know, Brady's gone, Roethlisberger's gone. Uh, there's there's going to be some interesting moves. Next year's going to be an interesting NFL season. But to focus on this game uh, and, and, and to give you an analysis of what I think is going to happen. I'll give you my prediction at the end of this. Um, but let's take a look at these teams head-to-head -head and let, let's, let's do a little bit of an analysis, okay? So let, let's take a look at the Bengals' quick passing game versus the Rams' pass defense, okay? The quick passing game presents a ripe opportunity for the Bengals to lean on a defensive scheme that negates the effect of uh, the Rams' pass rush. Plays to the strength of Joe Burrow and his talented receivers and targets the weakness of a Los Angeles defense as a whole. Burrow has excelled getting rid of the football in under two and a half seconds this season, finishing the regular season ranked second among 31 qualified quarterbacks in yards per attempt on such throws at 7.4. Rams opponents have routinely employed the quick passing game against them, and rightfully so. The Rams defense features three players who finished among the top 17 in total quarterback pressures during the regular season, Aaron Donald, Leonard Floyd, and Von Miller. Quick passes not only limit Donald and company's ability to change the game with pressure, but also serve as an attack against the weakness of LA's defense. 
The Rams allowed the most yards after the catch, 1,420, and third most yards per attempt, 6.8, against passers under 2.5 seconds during the regular season. So the main beneficiary when the Bengals go quick game heavy, you guessed it, Jamar Chase. The rookie phenom currently leads the team in receptions on quick passes entering the Super Bowl 61 and has amassed nearly twice as many receiving yards, 839, as his next closest teammate, T. Higgins, 422. So, advantage Bengals. So let's talk about the Bengals' vertical passing game versus the Rams' pass defense. Led by Burrow, Chase and Higgins, the Bengals' vertical passing game, has been essential to the success of the offense throughout their Super Bowl run. Burrow went from throwing a single touchdown pass when targeting a go-route across 10 rookie starts to leading the league in year two with 12. Chase accounted for seven of them. The success of Cincy's downfield attack on Super Bowl Sunday, however, will only go as far or long as the, def uh, the offensive line can hold its blocks against one of the most talented D-line groups in the NFL. Let's start on the perimeter. The Rams' defensive coordinator, Raheem Morris, has a big decision to make. Will L.A. stick with Jalen Ramsey on chase? How about Higgins? Bengals slot receiver Tyler Boyd told reporters last week that the team does not expect Ramsey to exclusively shadow a specific receiver. The numbers support this notion as Ramsey has not lined up against a specific receiver on more than 65% of a receiver's routes in a single game this season. Ramsey frequently shadowed top receivers, including six of his last nine games to end the season. The Bengals' offensive strategy throughout the game is likely to correlate and evolve with the score in the following way. If it's close, look for Cincinnati to call a bevy of quick pass attempts to reduce the pressure and the likelihood of turnovers, control the clock, and attack the defense's weaknesses. If the Rams jump out to an early lead, though, a more aggressive strategy will be needed, and Burrow will be inclined to take risky shots downfield, and the L.A. defense will have opportunities to generate pressure and create turnovers. Keeping Burrow clean in the pocket in those situations will be critical for the Bengals to mount any sort of comeback should it be warranted. So when the Rams have the ball, the acquisition of Matthew Stafford to the Rams in a trade with the Lions just over a year ago cost the Rams two future first-round draft picks, a 2021 third-rounder and Jared Goff. And yet, it would be safe to assume the Rams organizations, fans, and Cup all believe the trade has already paid off exorbitant dividends in their favor. And they would be right. After finishing the regular season with the third-highest next-gen stats passing score among quarterbacks, 91, Stafford has been lights out as a passer in the postseason, posting 
Next-gen score of 99 across three playoff games, good enough to vault his full-season mark to a 93, highest among any qualified quarterbacks. Hard to imagine any team would turn down the same trade for the opportunity to play in the Super Bowl at home. If Stafford is the chicken, Cup is the egg. That's not easy to say either because the other success, rather, you can't have one without the other. Cup was the only player across the league to account for more than 30%, 31.8, of his team's total targets during the regular season. His impact was most felt on third down as he picked up a first down on a staggering 17.8% of his third down routes run this season, including the playoffs leading the NFL by a comfortable margin. Cup's success on third down unsurprisingly correlates with Stafford's success in such situations. Add a rejuvenated Odell Beckham Jr. and a vertical threat in Van Jefferson into the mix, and the best hope for stopping the Rams through the air is to pray for self-inflicted wounds. If the Bengals' defense hopes to slow down the Rams, their hyper-efficient passing attack on the ball-hawking secondary will have to make plays. Most notably, watch out for safety Jesse Bates. Since the start of the season, no player in the NFL has forced a higher rate of breakups or interceptions per target as the nearest defender than Bates, 26.1%. Stafford has at times been careless with the ball this season, tying Trevor Lawrence for the league-leading interceptions with 17. The key for the Bengals and their defensive coordinator and his unit is to keep Krupp in front of the defense, completely shutting down the receiving Triple Crown winner in the passing game. And it's highly unlikely because Krupp has amassed at least 5 receptions and 60 receiving yards in all 21 games this season, which makes tackling in space a critical part of this game for the Bengals' defense. No player has gained more yards after the catch in the regular season than the NFL's Offensive Player of the Year. Whiteworth and Haverstein have manned the left and right tackle positions respectively for Sean McVay's five-year tenure as Rams head coach a rare feat of continuity at one of the most important position groups when it comes to team-building strategy. Across those five seasons, Los Angeles never ranked lower than 8th in the NFL in pressure probability allowed. This season, the Rams' offensive line allowed pressure within 3 seconds of a dropback just 9.6% of the time, the second lowest estimate across all groups. The Rams' stellar pass protection will be tested by a Bengals defensive front that was able to consistently pressure the quarterback without blitzing this season. Cincinnati generated pressure on 31.3% of dropbacks when sending a four-man pass rush, good for fourth in the NFL. Rams had their hands full in the NFC Championship game against a similarly built 49ers pass rush that ranked second in the split, allowing Stafford to be pressured a season-high rate. This ability to get pressure without sacrificing coverage will be key against a quarterback 
who has torched blitzes all season. The Bengals' edge rushers typically play side-by-side with Hendrickson aligning on the defense's right and Hubbard on the defense's left over 90% of their snaps. It follows that we can expect Henderson to face off against Whitworth and Hubbard against Haverstein. Well, Haverstein will have to deal with more dangerous pass rusher Nick Bosa in the NFC title game. Whitworth will be responsible for Cincy's top pass rusher in the Super Bowl. Hendrickson had a career year in his first season with the Bengal, generating a fourth-high single-season pressure rate of 19.4% in the next-gen stats era since 2016, a minimum of 250 pass rushes. Starting as a situational pass rusher in his first few seasons who made his money on third down, Hendrickson has earned a bigger role in each passing year of his career developing into a full-on superstar. He has forced 10 turnovers from pressure since 2020, including playoffs, trailing only Miles Garrett and Shaq Barrett. Hendrickson's impact on Cincinnati's defense is jarring. The Bengals doubled their pressure and sack rates when he was on the field this season compared to plays without him. The Strategic Matchup A member of the Rams staff, when the team last appeared in the Super Bowl three seasons ago, Taylor's offense shares characteristics of McVay's attack, but with some notable differences. And the offenses have greatly diverged on how they manufacture scoring drives this season. McVay's offense has a high floor due to its ability to consistently generate positive pass plays. Meanwhile, Taylor's offense has immersed as a ceiling with a lower floor and has leaned into higher variance shot plays. Stafford has slid right into McVay's scheme, making it a well-oiled machine. Los Angeles ranks second in pass success rate, 49.1%, and the total passing EPA, plus 104.1 this season. McVay's plays designs allowed his quarterback consistently finding open receivers as Stafford had the fourth highest expected completion percentage at 67.8% and targeted open receivers at a seventh highest rate of 48%. The combination of high-level QB play and scheme has given the Rams an offense as one of the highest baselines in the NFL. Kind of goes back and reminds you of the old greatest show on turf. Final tally matchup favors the Rams 3-2 against the Bengals. This, I think, is going to be an exciting game, folks. No matter how. I don't think this is going to be a blowout by any means. I think this is going to be exciting. I think they're going to play toe-to-toe for a while. I don't think the scoring is going to really start until later in the first quarter because Super Bowls are really kind of quite boring in the first couple of drives. Uh, I could be wrong. I mean, predictions are predictions, straight up. But I predict Odell Beckham to have a big game. I predict Cooper Cup to have a big game. 
But I also predict Joe Burrow to have a big game too. But I think in the end, the Rams are going to prevail today. And uh, I, I want to say I got to give the edge to the Rams today. And I predict that the Rams will win today. And I'm not a point guy, so I'm just going to tell you that I think the, just the Rams are going to win the game. So that's my prediction for the Super Bowl today. So I hope you enjoyed all those boring statistics. Um, it was kind of fun going through them. I, I think the NFL season was exciting this year. Uh, I was sad to see Tom Brady retire. But, you know, I think, you know, what what do you expect for a 44-year-old guy playing at that level? Although, you know, he left the door open. I think if he sees the right situation, you never know with Tom Brady. You just never know. Um, but, you know, I think he made his mark. I think he was the greatest football player to ever play the game. Uh, you could agree or disagree with that, but he certainly left a mark. In a 22-year NFL career, played in 10 Super Bowls. I mean, who could say that? Um, he was the GOAT. So anyway, I thank you very much for listening today. And uh, I would like to say that if you have the opportunity to do a random act of kindness for somebody today, please take that opportunity because if we do a random act of kindness for somebody, the world will be a much better place to live in. And with that, this is Double T saying, I do.